Welcome to the Meta Church Podcast. My name's Clayton. I'm the pastor here at Meta Church. And my hope is that today's podcast finds you at the perfect time in your life that God uses it to inspire and enlighten you. I hope that you enjoy today's message. If you're new with us, my name is Clayton. I'm the lead pastor here at Meta. I want to welcome you into a brand new series. We are in week one. Over the next five weeks, we're going to talk about dating, marriage, hookup culture, parenting, and so, so much more. However, before we get into all of the details around these topics, I want to start today by building a framework that I think will lead us through the rest of this series. And I know that some of you arrived late. I'm going to give one final warning. This series and this sermon specifically, we have rated PG-12. This is what I think, and this is how I preach. There are serious topics surrounding culture, and we cannot go around them. We have to address them directly. And so, we are going to be talking a lot about sex, a lot about relationships. If you don't want to be sitting next to your seven-year-old during that, you can check them into MediKids, where they will have an amazing time and have age-appropriate content. Context. I'm going to pray in just a minute. That'd be a great time for you to get up and go check your kids in. Our first message in our Love Up series is framing up, framing up. Would you pray with me? God, we love you, and we look forward to diving into a, a difficult topic today. I thank you for Church, a place for all people from all backgrounds, all different walks in their spiritual journey. Thank you for a place where we can come and belong and be loved. And God, I ask that we would be humble enough to lay down our own ideas and to allow you to show us something new, to challenge us, maybe even to convict us and lead us to change. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And if you're ready to learn how to love up, say amen. Amen. Now, I'm going to probably say this several times throughout this series because we are going to be addressing some topics that are pervasive in our culture. And because they are pervasive in our culture, what that means is that many, many of us in this room and watching online throughout this series are going to be wrestling through some of these very things, maybe have given in to some of these things, which means it's going to be challenging and it's going to be convicting. And here's why Meta Church really matters because a lot of us grew up in church and some of us didn't. That's beautiful too, but many of us grew up in church settings that were highly judgmental, and and it always felt like the preacher was kind of Jesus 2.0. They had it all figured out, and they were there to point fingers at you, judge you, and tell you just how mad God was at you. And at Meta Church, that is not what we're doing. We are learning together. We're striving towards something together. We believe that God created all of us on purpose. It matters that we're on earth, and he created us with purpose. He wants to use our lives to do something significant. And so God is not a God of guilt, but he is a God of conviction. Guilt spirals you into more of the same activities that are causing your guilt. Conviction is a call to turn face and make real changes towards the life that God has called you to. I was always uncomfortable in church when the pastor would say, God hates sin, but not the sinner. And it was like, Well, if he doesn't hate the sinner, 
You're spending a lot of time telling me how mad he is at me, the sinner, you know? And it was difficult, took a long time for me to actually understand what that means. There is a reason that God hates sin. God is holy and separate from sin. But God hates sin because God loves you. And sin destroys our life and distorts our purpose. It funnels us into avenues in this life that we were not meant to walk. And so... God allows sin to have consequence. And a lot of what we're going to talk about with sex and relationships has some of the biggest consequences you can attain in life. So what is consequence? The world will tell you consequence is a hateful God gleefully striking you down. The truth is, consequence is the natural outcome of us living our life apart from God. And it is used by God as a warning symbol to turn around and live the life we were created to live. And I want you to imagine if you had a friend who was sprinting towards a cliff that they didn't know was coming, what wouldn't you do to stop them? You would yell, you'd scream, you would light a flare, and if nothing else worked, you would tackle them to the ground. You would allow them to experience a little bit of pain to keep them from experiencing massive amounts of pain. That is what conviction is. And so as we enter into this, we're going to be direct. We're going to be unapologetic about what we believe, but we are going to clothe this conversation in a garment of grace as we move forward. And just know that wherever we go and wherever God leads us in this series, he cares about you. He loves you. And he is wanting a movement of people who will live up past and love up past the standards of this culture to the life he actually created us to live. What we're going to do is set a framework. I'm going to ask you to use your imagination a little bit today. And the older we get, the less we tend to use our imagination. But when you were five years old, you could create an entire universe just with your mind. And and we're really going to look at a large scope of history today. And I want us to try and plug ourselves in. The first framework we're going to look at is going to be the easiest. And that is our current framework for sex and relationships. A sermon like this and a series like this 30 years ago would have looked really, really different. Here's why. Because for hundreds of years, Western society where we live has been progressing towards more and more sexual and relational liberation. And so this is kind of how it breaks down. And you may have noticed this in your own family, in your own generations. In the 1920s, there were a bunch of 20-year-olds who were swing dancing. And there were a bunch of 60-year-olds who saw them swing dancing and were just absolutely concerned that everyone was going to hell because they were dancing together. The 20-year-olds who were swing dancing 40 years later were the 60-year-olds who thought that everyone was going to hell because of Elvis and his demon hips, right? The 20-year-olds who were the ones living in sin are now the 6-year-olds judging. The 20-year-olds who were there at Elvis's concerts 40 years after that were the 60-year-olds watching the NFL halftime show with Janet Jackson knowing the whole world is going to hell, right? So it just progresses and progresses along those lines. And so everyone thinks that where they're living is unique, and it has its unique challenges, and we say things like, I'm just so worried about the the world that my kids or my grandkids are going to grow up in. And yet, something has changed, and even credible historians have seen in the last 10 to 20 years that the sexual revolution towards liberation is speeding up exponentially. And there's a reason for that. 
The reason is that for the few hundred years before that, as a culture, we had some norms. We had a worldview norm, which was a Christian worldview. If you were here last week on July 4th weekend, we talked about how it's not actually accurate that America was founded as a Christian nation. However, it's absolutely accurate that America has had a Judeo-Christian worldview. That is indisputable, and that was the worldview norm. We also had a bedrock institution institutional norm, which was marriage, specifically faithful monogamous marriage. Over time, both of those norms came to be seen as oppressive and regressive. And here's why. Because we are a culture of rights and individualism. We love our rights. And so the church and marriage, what those bring into our life are responsibilities. And here's the lie that culture has fed us and we have bought. And you should really think about this in a lot of areas of life. We have bought the lie that responsibility are an impediment to our rights. And so anything that brings responsibility into our life keeps us from being able to fully live and fully express our individual rights and freedoms. And so for a couple of hundred years, people were sexually promiscuous. They have been since human beings have been on planet Earth. However, it was seen as countercultural. To have sex before marriage, sex outside of marriage, sex with multiple, multiple partners, things like pornography and, 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 and strip joints, gentlemen's clubs, those were all seen as taboo. They were counterculture. They weren't talked about. And it wasn't something that you were proud of. It existed, but it had to work around the norms, the church and marriage. What has changed and why things are speeding up so quickly is because the norms have now switched. And what used to be counter-cultural sexual promiscuity has now become mainstreamed. For the first time in our modern world, we are a sex-positive culture. And what that has become to mean is that we put no taboos, no constraints, no limits on sexual activity. Because the church and marriage have been seen as these great oppressors to our freedoms, our rights, our individualism, our liberty, they have been railed against for a couple hundred years. And over time, about 10 to 20 years ago, the church and marriage lost. We're living in a post-church country, a post-Christian, and we are moving rapidly to a post-marriage country. People are not getting married or starting families. This is new, and so the revolution has picked up, and hooking up before or outside of marriage is no longer seen as taboo. It's no longer counterculture. It now is the culture. It has been mainstreamed. We've always known that sex sells, you know, and so sex has always been a part of advertising, but it kind of had some limits, right? If you were going to buy a sports car, you knew that in the advertisement there was probably a scantily clad woman, but now you can't buy anything without there being sex in the advertisement. Try to buy a toaster. They're like, do you like your waffles so hot? It's like, bro, can I just buy a toaster? It's everywhere. It's so pervasive. You can't get away from it. It used to be like you could find some really sexually explicit songs. Now, turn on the radio and pay attention and see if you can find a non-sexually explicit song. 
It used to be like an R-rated movie might have a sex scene, and if it did, it was a big deal. Now try to find a mainstream movie without one. It is now the norm, and the church and marriage have been moved to the countercultural position. It's changing, and our behavior hasn't changed. People have been sexually promiscuous forever, but how we frame it has changed. And your framework over time will change behavior. Katie and I have a lot of friends in education, several at the high school level, administrators. They talk about how at the high school level and sometimes younger, casual sex has become mainstreamed. Now, I was in high school quite a while ago, but it's not like forever ago. And yes, teenagers were sexually active, but it was a big deal no longer. It's been mainstream. Maybe the most obvious change that you can see is with the issue of pornography. Pornography was something that you hid. It was taboo. It happened in the back alleys and seedy movie theaters. The average age of exposure to pornography for the first time has dropped below 10 years old. They are finding that there's these two, at the same time, divergent things happening. On the scientific front, when it comes to pornography, they are proving every study they do, sociologically, psychologically, every study they do proves just how harmful pornography is. Terrible for your mental health. Terrible for your relationships. It literally rewires, remaps your brain neurologically. It is so incredibly highly addictive, and not just addictive, but addictive where it pulls you into deeper and more and more hardcore pornography. They're seeing something that we've never seen in human history. Kids are being exposed to pornography so young, becoming addicted so young, going so far into such hardcore pornography that there are 16 and 17-year-old young men who have erectile dysfunction because they cannot be sexually stimulated by the real world. They've never seen anything like that before. So check this out. While science is proving that it is disintegrating our society, allowing pornography to be used like it is, at the same time that's happening on the social and cultural level for the first time ever, the taboo has been released and you will see movie stars and rock stars and pop psychologists on Instagram and TikTok talk, talking about how pornography is good for your overall health, your mental health, and your relationships. This would be like with everything we know about cigarettes, putting out advertisements saying, smoke cigarettes, you'll live longer, you'll breathe easier, your heart will be healthier. We know this scientifically, and yet we are living in opposition to it because putting a taboo on it, putting a limit on something sexually would be in the way of our rights and our individual freedoms. The world has changed. Our sexual standards and our sexual promiscuity no longer has to go around the norms. It has destroyed the norms, and it has become the norm. That is the world that we are living in today. And so, how did we get here? And is it working? You see, the idea of progress towards sexual freedom and liberation is that eventually we would usher in the utopia where we are all sexually free, there's no more taboos, we can all get as much sexual pleasure as we want, we'll all be happier, healthier, and better relationships. Has it worked? How we got here is a, a little bit interesting, and partly we have to kind of give the devil his due because people have pointed a finger at the church and said the church is oppressive. It's holding us back. It's keeping women marginalized. It, it, it's hurting us. It's shaming us. And yes, man, if you look at the organized church, 
Our history has been to use shame and guilt and fear and manipulation to ostracize people and keep them at the margins of society. We have to own that because a misapplication of grace and a misunderstanding of Jesus's original intention for his movement has actually pushed people further and faster into the mainstream cultural worldview. We have to own that. To simply hold a scriptural ethic for sex and sexual purity makes you archaic. Most preachers and most churches will not do a sermon, much less a series, about the topic of sexual purity because they will be all but laughed off of the stage. And so the idea was to burn it all down, to get rid of the institutions, to get rid of the worldview, and to progress towards where society is already headed. So, is it working? Did we get there? Are we any closer to the utopia that we all desire to live in? Even pre-pandemic, we saw that antidepressant medication was being prescribed at an all-time high. Suicide rate amongst almost every single age group, including teenagers, including children, all-time high. Single motherhood at an all-time high. Division among our nation getting close to an all-time high. Job, uh, uh, job satisfaction, drug dependency like an all-time low. Think about this. In a world where people are sexually freer, where there's almost no sexually taboos, where people are having more sex, more convenient sex, and more sexual partners than almost any time in modern history, people are reporting deeper loneliness than ever before. And so this hedonistic sexual liberation is not working. However, the church's approach to sex and having these conversations has done almost nothing to turn the tide or to stay the course of the sexual revolution. Simply saying, but God said not to, and God's going to be mad at you, and thou shalt and thou shalt not, has done almost nothing to change anybody's mind or to change the course that we have been headed on. I don't know if y'all remember the movie Mean Girls, but in Mean Girls, they show a sex ed class, and this was the whole speech. Don't have sex, you'll get an STD, you'll get pregnant, and you'll die. That was the youth groups I grew up in. If you have sex, God will be mad, you'll get an STD, probably get pregnant, ruin your life, and then you'll die. God will kill you. It's like, that hasn't convinced anybody. And so we're kind of stuck because society's answers is only spiraling us into deeper depression, deeper loneliness, more anxiety, worse relationships, higher divorce rates, higher suicide rates, and yet... The church has not stood up and made a real case and given a real framework for why Jesus's sexual and relational ethic actually matters and how it actually can change things. To see that, we're going to have to expand our scope. Part of the problem that we have just as a society is we have a very, very limited historical scope. We don't take history very serious when we're going through primary school we don't really learn about it. It's taught in very boring, dry ways. And, and we don't understand why we even need history. And, you know, for most of human modern civilization, people understood where they came from. And we really don't. We, we kind of know, like, right now. And then we kind of know, like, however long we've been alive. Like, maybe you're 30, and so you've got a 30-year historical perspective. And maybe you go a little bit further. Like, you know some stuff back to, like, World War II, because that was kind of a big deal, and the world changed a lot. And, and we learn a little bit in, like, fourth grade about the beginning of our nation. So maybe you know a little bit about 1776. But to be honest, to be honest, 
Most Americans have no idea how our country is even run or how it functions. Like, we have a very limited scope of history. And if you really want to understand where you are and how you got there, you have to expand that scope. And so I want you to tap into your imagination as we look at a historical framework for sex and relationships. We need to go back, if we want to understand the impact that Jesus had, this supposedly oppressive, regressive force in the world, if we want to understand it, we have to go to a pre-Jesus society. Rome and Greece were kind of the predecessors to the modern West that we live in. They were empires in their own right. They had cultural and technological innovations happening all of the time. They were societies that were the predecessors to ours, and in a lot of ways, mirrors ours just in an ancient setting, and yet... When you look at their social and legal constraints around sex and relationships, it's almost unrecognizable. And if you don't realize that this is the way the world functioned for almost all of human history, you will not understand how to behave or frame your life and your sexual relationships today. The critique that sex and marriage is just about power is actually not unfounded. In Greco-Roman culture, this was entirely the case. Men dominated women, the rich dominated the poor, and the resident dominated the foreigner, always. In the ancient world, sex was not an identity, it wasn't a lifestyle, it wasn't about pleasure. Sex was a way to display your dominance. It was seen as normal for a man to have sex with anyone beneath him in stature. It was about showing that you are the oppressor, they are the oppressed. You are the dominant, and they are your inferior. And so, if you were poor, which was almost everyone, what that meant is that a higher class man could lay claim to your daughters, your sons, or your servants for their own sexual gratification, and there was nothing you could do about it. In the historical framework for sex and relationships, the very bottom foundation is that it was selfish. It was all about what I can get and who I can dominate. It wasn't about love. It wasn't about building relationships. It wasn't about nurturing. It was a little bit about procreation. Even that was selfish because you wanted to have a big lineage. Even that was selfish because if you had a daughter, you might set her at the edge of town and let the elements kill her and try again to get a son because men were worth more than women. It was a selfish, selfish society. And it... it started at the top, this top 10% of men who got to dominate anyone. And because the, the middle 50% were being dominated by the top 10%, you know what they did in kind? They turned around to the bottom 40%. They dominated them. And if you were in the lowest 90th quartile, you had almost no one to domi dominate. But you know what? You would find that very bottom 10%. And it was domination from top to bottom, just selfish, getting it for yourself and not worrying about anybody else. In the ancient world, when a wealthy man's wife was ovulating, they would use sex with prostitutes or with lower class men's daughters or sons for their sexual release as a means of birth control. If you can even allow yourself to imagine for a moment living in a society that was so selfish that a man couldn't wait a few days for his wife and instead would come to your house, take your son or take your daughter and use them sexually as a means of birth control for their family. This is the pre-Jesus world. It was selfish, 
and it was built on convenience, selfish and convenient. And this is really, really worth taking note of because we are desperately trying to work our way back to convenient. And so we, we've got our, we went from dating apps where like, you know, you fill out a million questions and they try to get to know you and, and then they try to find someone that you would be electronically harmonious with, you know, and, and, and then, then we move past that to dating apps where it's like, how tall are you? What's some interest? And now it's just hookup apps. It's like, let's not play games here. Let's make it convenient. I don't got to buy you dinner. You don't got to pretend I'm taller than I am. We can just skip to what we all want here. We're trying to work our way back to convenience. Before the technological age, look, people have been trying to hook up forever. It just wasn't convenient. You had to like get a hobby so that you might meet someone at the gym or making pottery or bird watching. And then you'd have to get their number if you could. So you'd get turned down again and again. And again, and again, and again, and finally someone would give you their number, and y'all don't know this, but back in the day, you had to wait three days or people thought you were a creep, right? <laughs> so three days later, you would call them up, you would make plans, you would put it on the calendar, you have to show up on time, you gotta open doors and pull back chairs, you gotta take the check, you know what I'm saying? And depending on whether or not you have a woman who has standards, she might make you still wait. You might even have to meet mama before you're getting lucky, okay? It was anything but convenient. In the pre-Jesus world, it was about convenience. And if you were an upper status man, and you wanted to have sex with someone who was beneath you in social stature, it didn't matter if they wanted it or not. We should really, really consider whether or not we want to go back to a convenient sexual model, because here's the problem. Consent is never convenient. In the pre-Jesus world, consent wasn't a thing. It wasn't a category. It's not how things were measured. Either you had the power and you displayed your power, or you did not have the power, and you spent every day of your life just trying to survive. It was selfish. It was convenient. The only people who had any sexual autonomy, any liberty, were men who were wealthy and were in the ethnic majority. And if you were missing any of those three factors, your life was hell on earth. If you were a man and you were in the majority, but you were poor, your life was hell on earth. Every day wondering if someone's coming for your wife, for your daughter, for your son. If you were a man and wealthy, but you were an ethnic minority, your life was hell on earth. And if you were a woman, it doesn't matter what other qualifications you have, your life was hell on earth all the time. Women were not seen as people, they were seen as commodities, produce, product. We've talked a lot about sex, what about marriage? Marriage was selfish, it was convenient. Your father would find the highest bidder and whoever thought that you could rear them the most children or be most helpful around the house. There was no love, nobody cared about your feelings. You had no say in the matter. You got sold into your marriage to be a commodity for that man. Here was your option as a woman, and I hope, I hope we can like download a little bit of imagination and just try, even for a second, to imagine living in this world, the pre-Jesus framework for sex and relationship. If you were a woman, here's your option. Do your domestic duties, keep your mouth shut, fulfill your husband's sexual desires, and be faithful to your husband, even though there was no societal standard or expectation that he had to be faithful to you. This is really crude, 
But if you want to know how women were viewed, it was like this. I drive a Toyota. If I went and bought a Chevy, nobody would say, I'm cheating on my truck. You were a commodity. If you were unfaithful, you'd probably get killed. If he was unfaithful, it did not matter. If you were poor, which was most everyone, if you were in the ethnic minority, or if you were a female, your life was brutally miserable all the time. Here is the historical framework for sex and relationships. It was selfish, it was convenient, and it was purposeless. There was no real purpose to your marriage. It was just about what you could bring as a commodity to that house. There was no purpose to sex. There was nothing outside of you or beyond you. There was nothing transcendent or eternal. There was no actual purpose at the root of it. It was just dominate or be dominated. And because of this, in the ancient world, sex was not a good thing. It was not a beautiful thing. It was not a loving thing. If you were a middle-class father, Waiting every day for someone to scoop up your wife or your children to use for their sexual pleasure, sex and relationship was not a good thing for you. If you were a woman with no rights, no one gave a care about consent, sex and relationships were not a good thing for you. If you were a young person who would be used and abused for those in power's sexual pleasure and release, sex and relationships were not a good thing. They were bad all the time for almost all people. And so how do we get to this world? To a world where we see sex as not just good, but great. To a world where we value consent as almost the highest value when it comes to sexual relationships. How did we get to a world that continues to push for and protect the rights of women? To see that, we have to now look at a scriptural framework for sex and relationships. We've seen the historical. We've seen the pre-Jesus world. And maybe you got a glimpse of it. Maybe you were able to imagine having to live in that hell. And if you can imagine that, then you have the proper perspective to understand what exactly the movement of Jesus was and what exactly the movement of Jesus did for this world. Last Sunday, we looked towards July 4th, and we saw that at the very bedrock of the Western experiment was this idea that all people are created equal. And it should be obvious to you after the conversation we just had about history, that was not a self-evident fact. The world was divided by race, by class, and by gender at all times. This idea was new, and it didn't spring out of nowhere. It came from Jesus. This is the story of the gospel. The God who created all people came down to this earth in the form of a person and then sacrificed his life for all people in all places. That is the bedrock belief that the God who created us demonstrated on a cross that he saw all people in all places as equal of dignity, worth, and value. Can you imagine living in the Roman Empire under the circumstances we've described today? And there's this new movement from this Jewish carpenter who ended up on a Roman cross anyway. His movement comes to your town. You show up to synagogue that day. A letter gets opened by the Apostle Paul. And you hear this, there is no Jew or Greek. There is no slave or free. There is no male and female. Since you are all one in Christ Jesus, you are all equal 
in Christ Jesus. If you were impoverished, if you were a foreigner, if you were a female, if you were anyone other than the top 10% of men in that society, this would have been the first time in your life that you had heard something like this. This changed everything. It reorganized society, dignity, worth, value, equality among all classes, all races, maybe most radically among both sexes, men and women. This fundamental shift meant that the foreigner had the same inherent worth and value as the native. The poor had the same dignity before God as the wealthy. Women were just as precious as men in the eyes of God. And it sounds silly to even say that today, but that was brand new. This new movement could not be ignored, and it's worth pointing out this was a tiny, tiny movement, a fraction of a fraction of the actual population. Women flocked to the movement of Jesus. Did you know that? There are ancient non-Christian writers who wrote calling it a women's cult. So many women went. There was nowhere else in the ancient world where they could go and hear themselves talked about the way that Jesus talked about women. It was reframing everything. And the followers of Jesus, the apostles, they began to take these new realizations and the teachings of Jesus. And inspired by the Spirit of God, they began to write a new framework for sex and relationships. The Apostle Paul wrote to a church in Corinth, and Corinth was wild. It was one of the most sexually promiscuous places that's ever existed on planet Earth. And here's what he wrote in 1 Corinthians 7, verse 3. A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. When you read this in context, it's very obvious that what he's talking about here is like your marital duty, you know? You're do- it's talking about sex. And, and this idea right here, it, it could be interpreted by the listeners a few different ways. Like, yeah, for sure. I mean, we'll, we'll, do, we'll do the duty, you know, and the wife, she's got to, you know, she better step up to the plate because I will take her to the marketplace tomorrow, you know. <laughs> and, and he's like, no, no, no. A husband, see, he could have said a wife has to fulfill her marital duty, and likewise the husband. That's how everyone else would have written it. But he said, no, no, no. I'm putting the husband first. I'm putting the onus on you. You have a duty to your wife. You see, men didn't think they had a duty. They think that they were due. The men held all the rights. She wants to stay in this house and eat this food and live under this roof then she's got a duty to perform. And I better stay satisfied. And Paul goes, no, no, no. In this new framework that will change the world forever, a husband should fulfill his marital duty. And likewise, if you're serving her, she should also be serving you. This is literally turning the world's framework on its head. Instead of selfish, the scriptural framework for sex and relationships is selfless. We live in a very sexually selfish world, a very relationally selfish world. I want mine, I wanna be taken care of, they need to match up to my standards, they need to please me, I need to find the person who can do me right, that's how we think. Paul says, no, 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 
If you're going to live like Christ, if you're going to follow his model, it's not about what you can get from others. It is about what you can give. He reframed marriage and especially the sexually component of marriage. And this, if you're married and your sex life is on the rocks, this will change it. It is no longer a game of who can get what is due to them. You now have a new duty and it is not to get yours. It is to fulfill your spouse to the maximum component. This is now a game of two people loving each other, displaying that love in every area, area, including the bedroom, and giving and giving and giving. It is a selfless kind of love that changes everything. And let me tell you something. If you will begin to live selflessly in your marriage sexually, your spouse will jump over the moon to return the favor to you. That's how it works, and that's how you build a great, great sexual relationship in your marriage. Everyone can clap, and, and, then, and then it's like, it's not just the people with bad sex lives clapping. Everyone clap. Good. So that was pretty wild. It's like, we're not going to be selfish anymore. We're going to be selfless. We're going to give, 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 give. Our goal is not to get my own. My goal is for my spouse to be the most sexually fulfilled person on planet Earth. You live like that, your life is going to change. But he wasn't done. He goes to the next one because the men in Corinth are trying to figure out what this guy is talking about. And and he kind of starts to get it right in their eyes in verse 4. He says, a wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And the men in Corinth were like, a freaking man. Paul, we knew you were a good one, you know? You scared us for a second with all this duty talk. Paul's like, hit the brakes. A wife does not have the right over her own body, but her husband does. And in the same way, hold up. In the same way. What do you mean in the same way? Because this is the ancient world where men have rights and women are property. Women don't have rights. And you just said that I have the right over my wife's body, which I didn't even really need you to tell me that because that's how the world works. And he's like, in the same way, in the exact same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. You don't just have rights over her and then can also go be with her, 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 her. No, no, no. You have rights over her. She has rights over you. Y'all know about the sexual revolution? It's like in the 1960s and 70s. And it was trying to, to destroy these norms that we were talking about. And one of the big complaints among second wave feminists were that men could have purposeless sex. And there was basically no consequence because, you know, men can't get pregnant. And so what happened in the revolution is, it's like women were going, we want to get ours too. We want to be all freaky deaky like the guys get to. And then they invented the birth control pill. And it put everyone on even playing field. And from that moment on, we went back to the historical version of me versus you for us, instead of me for you and you for me for God. That wasn't the first sexual revolution. This was. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 4, I believe is the most sexually liberating sentence ever penned in human history. With this one verse, Paul introduced something that will become the bedrock of our sexual ethic. He introduced consent. This wasn't a part of the ancient pre-Jesus world. And now he's building a framework where sex and relationships are selfless and they are consensual. 
Men laying down their rights to serve their wives. Women laying down their rights to serve their husbands. Men choosing to live for the satisfaction and fulfillment of their wives. Women choosing to live for the satisfaction and fulfillment of their husbands. This changed the world and it laid the foundation for a world where women received equal worth, dignity, and value. I believe that women, even if you don't believe in Jesus, that he died, that he rose again, you should forever be thankful for him. The world we're living in that we take for granted because we have such a narrow historical scope and framework, it was changed by the teachings of Jesus displayed through the writings of his first followers. Your rights, your rights, all fall under his rights. And he sees all of you as equal. The movement of Jesus, what it was really doing is it was rescuing, redeeming, and restoring God's original intention for sex and relationships. Everything God made, God made good. We know because he made it and then he called it good. God made sex, made sexual desire. God instituted marriage and he blessed it. Our sin and our brokenness corrupted it distorted it, and over time disintegrated the very fabric that sex and relationships were built on. Jesus came to restore the original purpose. Listen, in Genesis 1, the very beginning of Scripture, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They will rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female in the image of God. Why does equality matter? Dignity, worth, value? Why does consent matter? Because we are all made in the image of God. We are image bearers of the divine. Why is sex good? Because God made it. He designed it. He made it good. Why is marriage important? Because God made it. He designed it. He made it important. In Genesis 2, 24, it says this. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. And God put them together, man and woman, and he gave them their marching orders. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and rule over it. You see, in the scriptural framework for sex and relationships, it's selfless, it's consensual, and it is purposeful. It's the actual purpose of your life. And our culture will try to make you believe, young men, that your best life can be found in putting off marriage till the last possible second, right before you start turning a forehead into a five head, that's when you need to lock them down, you know? Put it off so you can have as much sex with as much people. Man, don't get locked up to a ball and chain too early. Women, culture will try to convince you that the best thing that you can do with your life is to put off getting married, especially put off having kids so they don't get in the way of your career aspirations and everything else that you want to do. And so you can just go and have fun and live your best life and have lots of sex with lots of different men. That's what the world will try to convince you. And why is it that the more people who follow that roadmap and that framework end up so depressed and so lonely, so anxious with so much regret? God created you for relationship. Young men, 
the best thing you can do with your life is to begin following God's sexual ethics and principle. Not just because God said so, not just because you're gonna get an STD and die, none of that. It's not the thou shalt, thou shalt. It is a calling for your life. It's not just about avoiding sin. It is about discovering a purpose that God has placed in front of you that he's desperate for you to head towards. You know, there's this tiny, tiny minority of people called Jesus followers. They started living with this framework for sex and relationships. They didn't even show up on the radar of culture, but they stood firm. This new framework liberated everyone, the poor, the minority, women. It it raised everyone up. Scripture did not oppress and regress sex. Scripture set the world free sexually and relationally. It was the first sexual revolution. And here's what you need to know. Every decision that you make in your individual life about how you're going to live sexually and relationally is a vote for the world that you want to live in. You see, people think that progress is a straight line, right? And so, you know, women didn't have rights and they started to have rights and then we had slavery and and, that was so evil and we got rid of that and and we progressed and progressed. and, And what they didn't realize is all of this progress was happening on a foundation of Jesus and his teachings. And eventually the progress went past Jesus, past the foundation it was on. We think progress is a straight line, but I'm telling you, if you study history, progress is a circle and eventually you will progress past progress and end up right back where you started. The more and more that we remove Jesus and his ethic for how our life is supposed to run, the more we remove him from our culture, mark my words, the more the most vulnerable among us will get hurt. It's already happening. Five years ago, the average age of exposure to pornography was 13 years old, still far too young. Now, It's nine. The further we move away from Jesus, the more and more the most vulnerable among us will get hurt. We are heading in a circular fashion right back to an ancient pre-Jesus world. There's great purpose for you. The idea of purity and the idea of marriage, the idea of getting your life together, finding someone to love, fighting for your marriage, starting a family. God has called you to do that. It's welling up inside of you. And any other outlet the world offers you will not satisfy. If you look at every Orthodox religion on earth, you know what they do? They get married and have as many freaking kids as they can possibly have. The Mormons will have as many kids as they can possibly have. Orthodox Jews will have as many kids as they can possibly have. You know why? Because they actually believe there's purpose to how they're living. They think that if they can bring in and raise a more of the next generation, and yet Christians in the, in, in the United States are not getting married and they're not having kids. We have bought the lie that the responsibility of what God instituted will get in the way of our rights. And the truth is, our rights are only actually expressed through the taking on of responsibility. And so let's frame it up. This is what we're going to use every week. We've seen... The historical perspective, scriptural perspective, we're going to look at today's perspective. Here's the framework for the historical perspective. It is selfish, it is convenient, it is purposeless, and because of that, it ends up bad. It is bad across the board for everyone, sexually and relationally. 
Scripturally, the framework is selfless, it's consensual, it's purposeful, and it is good. And so where are we at today? Today, this is what we want. We want to be selfish. It's all about me and what I can get. And we want to be consensual. We want it to be consensual. And we want it to be convenient. Two values that are at odds with each other. We want it to be convenient, but we also want sex to be good. We want relationships to be good. We want sex and relationships to be good, but we want them to be purposeless. We want to live in hookup culture, no strings attached, meaningless, purposeless culture. Do you see what's happening? We want the inputs of the historical world, selfish, convenient, purposeless, and somehow out of that, we want the outcomes of the scriptural framework. We want it to be consensual, and we want it to be good. We are living in a divided time. Your framework influences worldview. Your worldview influences your behavior. And over time, if we continue with the inputs of a selfish, convenient, purposeless culture, you will see sex and relationships get worse and worse. And you will see less and less and less consent. And so what do we do? We can't change the whole world. We can't change all of popular culture. We can't rewrite all the movies. We can't erase all the songs. And we don't need to. God has put you on earth to be an agent of redemption of all things. We again will be this tiny fraction of a fraction of the population choosing to frame our lives our sexual lives and our relationships, to frame them differently, to lean on the truths of Scripture and the beauty that they once brought our world. And if you choose to live this way, you are casting a vote for the kind of world that you are choosing to live in. And before you think, I'm just one person, we're just a few hundred people, we're just one local church, one local church in Galatia, one local church in Corinth, a local church in Philippi, and one in Rome. They got together. They reframed their lives, and they changed the world. There's no reason to think that you and I cannot do the same. Would you pray with me? God, we love you. Um, I am convinced that the world is desperate for a movement of people who will love up, who will level up our view of ourselves our standards, who will lean in, who will allow you to challenge us, to convict us, to inspire us, to enlighten us, to show us something new. And I realize this is an uphill battle in the world that we are living in, and yet it is worth the fight. So God, we love you. We ask that you'd continue to move in our hearts and to move in this series, and we pray it all in Jesus' name. Everyone said, amen. Thanks so much for listening to the message today. If this was helpful to you and you want to help us get the word out, you can subscribe to this podcast. You can rate and review or share it with your friends. If you want to get connected further with what MetaChurch is doing, you can go online to metachurch.tv. There you can learn how to take next steps. You can learn where our different venues are at if you ever wanted to visit. And you can also give financially to help push this movement forward. And I love you guys, and I hope you have a great rest of your day.